Hello and welcome to the Talking About podcast brought to you by ARU's Counselling and Wellbeing team. Talking About is a space to openly discuss the topic of wellbeing and mental health in a way that puts our students' thoughts and feelings at the forefront. My name is Lucas Oliver and I'm a counsellor at ARU. I'm joined today by Daniel Fonseca O'Connor, Education and Training Assistant for the Personalised Eating Disorder Support Charity, otherwise known as PEDS, and Lucas Negroni, a current student and peer wellbeing mentor at ARU. In this episode, we're going to be talking about eating disorders and men. Very happy to be here today. We're focusing on eating disorders for men, and I'm really pleased to introduce Lucas Negroni. Hi, it's great to be here. And we've got Daniel from PEDS, so you'll be explaining much more about that. Of course, that, that's the point today. But first of all, hello to you, Daniel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So um, I think uh, we're going to clearly want to know actually about PEDS straight off. So it's an acronym. So would you give us the full low down there and outline the service, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so PEDS, also known as Personalised Eating Disorder Support, was set up in 2013 by two nurses who worked on an eating disorder ward. They noticed that there was a gap between the people who were admitted to this eating disorder ward and sort of wanted to delve into what was happening to those who were still on the waiting list to get in or because they felt that they were potentially being left out. So the service mainly caters for those with mild to moderate but can see a bit more severe cases if required. They work in conjunction with the CPFT, which is a local mental health uh, service, and the Adult Eating Disorder Service and Children and Young People Eating Disorder Service. So they typically have four to six sessions and on the fourth session decide whether it's needed to continue or potentially what's next for the treatment phase. And their key message is just seeing people at the earliest, op- earliest opportunity because once you see them at the earliest opportunity, recovery is more likely and at a quicker rate. That really makes sense. Um, and so good that you responded to you know, what you were seeing there, a, a gap in the market, as you call it, makes real sense. What was your interest, Lucas, in, in male eating disorders specifically? Growing up, um, I've had lots of friends who have um, suffered from eating disorders and it's a topic which I feel isn't addressed that much. And I think for men in particularly, there's a stigma attached. So. I really want to know about more about like the main causes of eating disorders that are commonly associated with young men at university. As you said, there's a big stigma behind eating disorders. A lot of people picture eating disorder as typically someone with anorexia is the main one, normally female, quite skinny, underweight, and that's pretty much everyone's picture of an eating disorder. But men still can get eating disorders. Beat published a statistic where I think it's roughly one point to 5 million people have been diagnosed with an eating disorder and they're suggesting probably around 25% or one, yeah, 25% could be males, but then there could be a lot more because the thing with men is we don't really seek help if we feel there's a problem. We sort of bottle it up and that's a big issue because as I said earlier, noticing it at the earliest opportunity and seeking that help at the earliest opportunity is more beneficial. So. With eating disorders, there's a wide range of eating disorders. There's anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge eating, and then there's a lot more in, that aren't classified in the DSM. 
So anorexia nervosa is typically self-starvation due to a distorted body image. And with men, it can also be the pursuit of muscularity. So this is where it's a differentiation normally. So with anorexia men, they're not driven by this skinny ideal. It would be the muscular ideal that they're pursuing. For binge eating, viewed as a loss of control around food, the individual can eat large quantities of food in a short period of time on a regular basis. Um, binges can be quite distressing and the person may find it impossible to stop even if they want to. So I've described it as a sort of a compulsion or an addiction. So with bulimia, it's cycles of binging and purging behaviours, which can be followed by compensatory behaviours such as exercise. So binging large amounts of food and then purging could be with laxative misuse or self-induced vomiting and in males particularly, but it can be in females as well. The compensatory behaviour would be something like exercising excessively. There is also um, other specified feeding and eating disorders which look at, looks at your atypical diagnosis. So someone can present with certain characteristics or symptoms of anorexia, but not quite fit the exact definitions that's in this DSM. And that would be something like atypical anorexia or anorexia athletica. Uh, you've got stuff like ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which typically is seen in younger people. And it's can be due to sensory issues. They don't like the taste, the smell of a food. It can be due to a traumatic experience they've had. So they could have thrown up whilst eating that food and then now just want to avoid it. It's often misidentified as picky eating because it's normally in younger people. So they just believe, oh, it's just a phase. Whereas typically if it goes past that phase for a few more years, you should start to see that it's a bit more than just a child being a picky eater. You have stuff, um, eating a sort of called pika, where you eat food that aren't considered as food. So it could be things like coal. There's rumination eating disorder, which is newly classified. Um, and that's where an individual eats the food, regurgitates it, rechews it, and then decides if they want to re-swallow it or spit it out. There's orthorexia, which is coming more with a diet fads and that kind of thing, which is an unhealthy obsession with clean eating or healthy eating. There's diabulimia, where someone can stop taking their insulin shots in order to lose weight. And yeah, there's a, also muscularity-orientated disordered eating, which can be typically seen in men, which is that driven pursuit from the muscular ideal or the Marvel body types that we're seeing portrayed in the media. Can you just explain what DSM means, please? So that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it's in its fifth version currently and I think they're updating it in the next upcoming years but it's just a manual that has all mental disorders and that kind of thing into a nice book that GPs can use for example and it just has the criteria of what needs to be there for a diagnosis so it could be exhibiting a certain behavior for one week for at least three months for example and then they can just, it's sort of like a checklist to see, okay, it fits that criteria. There's so much there, Daniel. I guess we, we probably want to take a pause and just unpick. I mean, I was interested in um, the latter one, not just because it's the last one you said, 
Um, there's also something you mentioned about Atletico. Yeah. Could you just unpick that a little bit? So anorexia athletica is similar to the like muscularity-orientated disorder or compulsive exercise disorders, where the idea isn't regarding is regarding body image, but not this pursuit for to be skinny or to be thin. It's more the pursuit for how you look in terms of muscularity and it then leads to compulsive exercise so you could see someone running excessive distance for excessive amounts of time and excessive days and that just becomes a routine and they might struggle to identify that that's potentially an issue because the thing is it can become so ingrained in your identity that you just don't see it in as a problematic way because it just becomes part of you that really takes me back, actually. It puts me in mind of a guy when I was back at university called Pete that I lived with. And he um, was striving kind of a, a bit to be something he, he wasn't. I noticed, first noticed with him, because I lived with him, the amount of meals he was eating a day. Yeah. And he was obsessively working out, but he was just sort of body type, a bit like mine, actually, where he's just sort of tall and thin. You know, he was quite a good footballer, actually. But I think he kind of always wanted to be a rugby player or something like that. and just identified with that body type quite strongly and that that was what type of thing you were saying i think media plays a big part in it nowadays i think we for example if you look at instagram and like instagram reels if you watch a video for just a bit longer than the usual flicking it through your reels become tailored to that so say if you're watching someone i think if i remember one off the top of my head it was michael b jordan's routine for black panther and it showed him what his routine was to get his physique i watched it and then i'd say the next 20 videos was all exercise so it's easy to get your social media algorithm to just feed into this see of course i'm talking back to pre-social media and this type of stuff so what sort of impact do you think this is having these days it's having a huge impact there was a study in 1995 that looked at fijian culture which was typically more robust women and it looked at the introduction of television and once the study was completed um, the ideal body image in Fiji changed from this robust larger build to what they were seeing on westernized tv of this skinny individual so yeah so it used to be said that um I can't remember the uh the name but it was a, like the Fijian beauty pageant for example mm -hmm they were actually told to put more weight on to fit this cultural view. And after the introduction of television, it flipped. So it's easy to see how big of an impact just watching TV can be because these are, there are a lot of people, especially the younger people, role models. Now that, that totally fits actually. If I think back to Pete, he, he got better because I lived with him for a couple of years and I know he, he kind of got a handle on it in the end and he seemed to just relax into being who he was a lot more. And he told me that actually it was another friend of ours that said to him that all the best rockers were skinny. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just something about that that helped him to um, be accepting more of who he was and I suppose to maybe challenge the ideal that he was aiming for that would be more attainable. Was this at university? It was, yeah, a while ago. That was in the 90s. <laughs> so I've left university this year. I did my master's in sport and exercise psychology. So being fresh out of uni, um, I can remember the time when I first started, it's a thing when you go into your house of sharing a house of new people, a lot of them all go to the gym. So it's quite easy to just 
that was the case that. back and then as well. if you feel that you might be a bit more overweight it's easy to just get into it or if you feel that you're a bit skinny and you're seeing your housemates your flatmates bulking and that kind of thing it's easy because you're in that environment to get into it and then it's a kind of a gray area or a slippery slope of when it may become problematic or disordered yeah absolutely and lucas what are you seeing in this because you're you're into strength and conditioning as well uh, what's your comment what drove me into studying personal training and then strength and conditioning was that i wanted to improve my body and also improve other people's bodies and i think when i was in school there was a lot of um we would try and get as muscular as we could or put on weight and there was this one person who had like an insane body and he was like maybe 12 13 and he had the body of like a 25 year old and everybody kind of wanted to be like that i think what i picked up at a young younger age was like there's certain things which i can't change about myself and um what i wanted to do was to think about um, the things that I can change and also it's more about what you're capable of like the health related benefits of exercise and eating more healthier. Yeah I guess as a counsellor I've always instinctively tried to focus the conversation with people on what is healthy as opposed to the aesthetic and you know because the pressures that go with that are enormous aren't they? Apart from that um, sort of instinct of mine, uh, Daniel, have you got any more advice for us as, you know, counsellors or people who, uh, the do's and don'ts, if you like? So I think the key thing is at PEDS, we've had a chat with our nutritionist and their big thing is to sort of shift away from this idea of body image and to come into body acceptance. As Lucas was saying, of noticing the things you can change in a healthy way is key. It's not you can change everything about yourself. It's you can see what you can change and impact and if you're unhappy with yourself in that respect changing what you can change and not letting it lead on to what could be detrimental to your health so sort of the do's and don'ts especially for someone who's supporting someone with potentially an eating disorder so just listen to them be empathetic if they've come to you and said i've potentially got disordered eating or i'm struggling with my eating i don't want to be around people with food because it's setting me in a bad way they've come to you for a reason it's taken a lot for them to bring this up especially in the male population when we find it hard enough as it is to talk about our problems and our issues they are coming from something that they're experiencing so just listen to them hear them out and don't bark orders at them in a sense so don't just say oh, okay it's not all about the food don't just say go out and just eat more because that's not going to help them it's working through them and trying to get them to seek specialist support if they need it. So it could be starting, it all can start stem from a conversation with you to say, okay, if you believe there's a problem here, just talk it through and see what the potential triggers could be. It could be exam stress. It could be bullying from a young age about their body size and then just getting them to see a GP. Cause I think the GP is always the first point of call and they can help elevate if it needs to be elevated or at least it's been brought up so it's marked as notes what do you think the impact of bullying is i think bullying it's especially at a younger age 
a lot of people don't see it for what it is and it can have such a long lasting impact on people because it sticks with you. I think especially if you, it's more the overweight people or individuals that are bullied because it's easier to identify something that you can see and pick at them. And by doing that, it can easily stick with an individual up until university, for example. And if they get into a, a house where they're all avid exercisers, it's easy to slip into that as a routine. And then, yeah, but it happens to loads of people that don't develop an eating disorder. It's just a really gray line and a slippery slope of when it can escalate further. And I guess I wanted to rewind a little bit as well, because um, you, what about the situation where you are living with someone else, you're in a house share and you, you noticing you're noticing stuff about eating habits or maybe toileting habits, uh, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. What would you advise? My main advice would just be have the conversation. I think everything can stem from a conversation, just saying, hi, because if you're living with each other, if it's the first year, you might have a, not have a choice with who you're living with. But say if you're a second year, a third year, a post-grad, you probably had a choice and you're living with your friends. And if you're noticing that one of your friends potentially has an issue disordered eating or an eating disorder to start off with a conversation and see what stems from there and just bring up about what you've noticed Just say I've noticed that you've you've cut down on your meals for example or I've noticed you're a bit more fatigued recently you're spending more time in your room you don't cook with us anymore you don't eat with us anymore you don't socialize you just stick to your room and I think that's the key thing is observing these behaviors in individuals whether it's so sort of socially withdrawing themselves out of their house and just sitting in their rooms, they're avoiding that social aspect. It's key to bring this up because they might not realize it and they might need help or guidance from a friend to just say, okay, I've noticed this. And where do we move from that point onwards? So this is something that people can really slide into and maybe not be aware of. I think um, it can be likened to sort of the conversation about suicide. If you ask someone if they're suicidal, are they going to commit suicide? The likelihood is no, they won't. But they're looking for that conversation with you. And stemming from that conversation, it can happen. So it's not like if you identified to someone that, they have, that you've identified these issues, they're going to develop an eating disorder. No, they're probably just going to need that help to identify that. So it could be a really nice first step to ask that question or, or yeah. uh, think aloud, if you like, about what you've noticed with yeah. someone and ask if they're okay. If I was to suspect somebody with a potential eating disorder, how would I go about starting a conversation? I think the first thing to say is being blunt is key, but you have to be careful with being blunt by telling, so you, identifying what, the issue you have seen as and see if they identify it also as problematic. So it could be them withdrawing, for, withdrawing into their room, they're not eating with the fat, flat anymore. Whereas if you looked at it in the years beforehand, they might have, it might have been a weekly thing where the whole flat comes together, cooks a joint meal, they all eat together, have a drink or two and that's it. And then if you notice currently they're taking themselves out of that situation, I think probably the best starter of a conversation would be pulling them to one side or sitting in their room with them and just talking just say I've noticed that you're not spending as much time with us anymore it's is there a reason would you like to talk about it and 
probably nine times out of ten they could say and let whatever they need to come out come out I think that's the the main thing is just talking and not being afraid to talk because as, as men we're not ones for talking <laughs> you can be quite straightforward about what you're noticing I think being straightforward is key I think if you've got to be careful with using logical arguments because as I alluded to earlier with the this sort of voice logic sort of goes out the window so there's no point arguing with them saying this is wrong you're doing this this isn't healthy and it can be a 5 10 15 minute argument all about you trying to use logic where logic kind of goes out the window be careful of winning yeah and it's just yeah just being empathetic and if they do open up to you and say that they've potentially got they're having troubles eating around people they're saying it for a reason it's not a choice they're not deciding to withdraw themselves it could be something a lot more than that and it's just yeah being empathetic and listening in a non-judgmental way particularly in regard for for people who uh, want to lose weight and uh, manage their their weight uh, what's uh, some more, more advice about how to support people that way i think for losing weight and managing weight it's another slippery slope because the easiest thing to do is just cut out food groups or cut out meal portions and just cutting out everything i mean if you look at sports for example a lot of them will use cutting you've got weightlifting where they might bulk and cut you've got boxing events where they can bulk and cut and it's easy for people just to assume okay they they just remove this aspect i'll do the same but they also have like a nutritionist involved where they can help guide them to still maintain the right calories and because of the exercise that they're doing I think it's key to look at is maintaining weight isn't a fact of just cutting out food groups because that can be detrimental to your health. It's, there are websites out there that can help do it in a healthy manner. There is also GP services for dietitians and stuff where you can seek advice on how to do this in a healthier way. And there will no doubt be services at the university that can help guide people in the correct manner. In a, and in a healthy manner. What can I do myself if I am experiencing maybe like the symptoms? Can I, would I be able to detect it? Like, would it just kind of be natural? I think it's hard to detect for the person because as I alluded to earlier, it can become so ingrained in your identity that you just see it as part of you. People have likened it to a voice on your shoulder. So you, similar to the devil and the angel, on your shoulder the devil is rewarded or the eating disorder voice is rewarded when they engage in these characteristics people have identified it as being a friendly voice and encouraging them and if someone encourages you it's hard to go against it and they're normally in combat with these two voices but normally the eating disorder voice overrides the other voice the idea of rationality or this might not be the right thing to do this might not be a healthy behavior we shouldn't be abusing laxatives for example and they that voice could then just be saying well done and positively reinforcing you and then that becomes a vicious cycle so i think it, it's hard for you to potentially notice but if you do notice i think best is just to seek advice as soon as you notice even if you think it's a minor problem best is to speak to your family your friends or the gp being the primary point of call what about actually when people do 
head down this road, if you like, but they are actually looking better. You know, their body image is improving to them. To them. Daniel, what would you say are the sort of the traps or the seductions about that that can lead that to an extreme? I think it, it's hard and it's, so you've got the idea of reinforcement, so positive and negative reinforcement. If you're losing weight, for example, and your family friends are just saying, well done, you've done this, you're looking healthier, you're looking fitter, you're looking a lot better. This is all reinforced and then it becomes a slippery slope of you potentially continuing that weight loss where it then becomes to one extreme because it's people like to feel rewarded for what they're doing. And if you're losing weight, typically people reward you verbally. If you've got, if you're putting on weight, people normally, if for example, if you just lost that weight and you start to put a little bit of weight on, people can easily say, oh, you're looking a bit, you know, and it, then they're just getting that negative reinforcement. So, okay, I need to go back onto losing weight again. And it just helps feed into this cycle. So reinforcement, you need to be really careful if you're having a conversation with people in reinforcing weight loss, for example, or their physical appearance, because that could be feeding into that eating disorder voice, because not only is it that voice rewarding them, it's also people outside of their network that are rewarding them. Are eating disorders hereditary? They, it's probably easier to refer to the evidence that there is there that suggests that they are hereditary for there's been twin studies and family studies that have shown i don't think they've quite identified a genetic component yet for it but there is shown that you are i think it's for anorexia like twice as likely to develop anorexia if your parents had anorexia or i think it's four times as likely for bulimia please don't quote me on those facts i'm just trying to remember off the top of my head but in short answer yes and no (laughs) probably just going on from that question what can i do or what can we as students do in our lifestyle to like let's say reduce maybe the risk of getting an eating disorder i think it's hard to reduce the risk because everyone has their own reasons and own triggers for potentially leading them to develop an eating disorder but i think the best things to or my advice would be just having an open and honest channel of communication with your family, with your friends, because they are the support network that are more than likely going to first identify that there could be an issue arising. And I think for you as a peer wellbeing mentor, I think understanding that it isn't a choice is probably key. And if it's not a choice, it's working with them in a collaborative manner to help them on their road. So it could just be being a person to have a conversation with it, raising it to the right people because of the, you have confidentiality issues and just, yeah, just helping them, helping to guide them along their journey because it can be quite a lonely journey if they don't have a support network around them. And um, your interest, of course, Lucas, is somewhat to do with nutrition. Do you have anything to add around that? I think like how can we, like myself, change the attitudes and like stigma towards like eating disorders but then in terms of nutrition like how can i what is the best way to kind of tell people that like some kind of positive reinforcement that you can if you eat all like your food groups and everything it's not gonna make you uh 
gain excessive weight or lose excessive weight you don't have to do it in an extreme manner yeah i think that's key as i said sort of having that conversation with people and just identifying if there is an issue or if you're doing this for example where you're talking about food groups and for exercise it's identifying that your body needs all these food groups they all serve a purpose particularly for exercise where you're going to be losing out on key sources of energy maintaining all the right sources of food will help you actively function it'll help your recovery and exercise it will help you concentrate academically so you've mentioned a whole range of things um, within university outside uh, as well and is there anything else that we really need to know specifically about your service PEDS that you'd like to add there Daniel so um, PEDS can be self-referral so you can refer yourself to PEDS and they can help talk you through and they can also be your friends can refer you so if you don't feel comfortable filling out the form but your friend does and this is an agreed thing of course, it can't be you do it without them knowing. There is PEDS that can help support that. And PEDS does have a partnership with ARU. So they are, it should be quite easy to get seen with PEDS. It is. Uh, I've already referred people to PEDS and, and I know it is. Uh, you know, it's really helped to make this connection, I think, between our two services. Thank you both so much. It's been really uh, great to have that conversation, especially to bring a bit more out in the open, something that, that I think you're right, has, there's a stigma attached to it somewhat. And it's something that I think most people don't necessarily consider. Thanks for joining us today to talk about eating disorders and men. If you've been affected by anything we've spoken about in this episode, please reach out to the Counseling and Wellbeing team and make the most of the support we can offer you visit aiu.ac.uk forward slash wellbeing to find out more about our service and how to get in touch. And see you next time for an in-depth discussion about stress and resilience.